Good morning, Christ Central. Um, my name is Bobby. I'm one of the pastors who serve here at Christ Central. Today's sermon title is Idolatry of Comparison, and the text will be John chapter 21, verse 15 through 19. This passage is near and dear to me because this is how I received my calling from this text. John chapter 21, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love Agapos, me, more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love? And he uses a different word, phileus me. And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, would you have grace upon me, a sinner, a mercy on my soul, and all those that are listening, for apart from your grace, we are lost. Lost to continue to drink from the idols that plague our soul, to find our worth and our joy in created things instead of the creator. And so would you change that? through the truth of your word. Would you let the exposure be healing because we are in your presence? And would you become a balm to our soul? And it is in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the question I want to ask you is why are so many of us stuck in our spiritual life? For many people, when I talk to them, they say they feel like it's just a repetition in their life of do's and don'ts. They wake up and they do the do's and they fight with all their might to not do the don'ts. Why is it that we have such rapid burnouts while serving? Why do we all long for a day when we don't have to do anything? We just do nothing. Why do we look forward to doing nothing when God has called us to give all and to lay down all for him? Why are Christians so cynical and filled with judgment and criticism more than love for God and others? Perhaps our own personal spiritual condition is affecting our relationships far more than we know. And by spiritual condition, I don't mean, and I mean more than not living in sin. Not a spiritual, what I'm talking about is spiritual pride and the inability to see one's stunted growth, a callousness and cynicism toward other people and even their spiritual life. Why is it easier to criticize others than to champion their flourishing? 
Why is envy far easier than elation of other people's successes? Why is it that when other people are put in the spotlight and they do well, your stomach turns because you're asking, why is that not me? You can't tell anyone that, but you feel that. Why is it easier to stand against someone than to stand beside them, help carry their burdens? Especially on the internet, it's so easy to hide behind a screen and a keyboard and say things. How do we break the chain of callous competition? What is it that is at the source? I think Peter's journey will help us see how we can claim to love God and yet be judgmental and envious toward other people instead of life-giving. To understand this passage, let me share with you the context, his life journey that Jesus is addressing in this text. I need you to stay with me, and we will bring it all back to the passage that we just read. But without context, we won't truly understand why Jesus used the very words he used. It was precise, it was meant to heal, and it was intentional. Nothing was wasted in that text. So here's the roadmap. And <laughs> first, we will see a confident, almost arrogant faith of Peter as he calls out everyone for their compromise and weakness in faith. Then we'll see the bold and confident Peter disappear after his betrayal. He will become a shell of himself as he realizes that he betrayed everything he promised and is just as broken as everyone else. He's too ashamed to attempt to live out his calling to lead and shepherd the church. Instead, he goes fishing, back to what is easy, back to what is familiar. Fishing is his way of drowning out this unrelenting voice that calls himself a failure, a betrayer, an absolute fraud, and the shame and guilt overwhelming. And that's when we arrive at the breakfast scene where Jesus restores Peter from his deep shame and comparative faith, his idolatry of comparison to others, and we'll see and conclude how Jesus takes Peter from seeing others as competitions and subjects of scorn and weakness to sacrificially dying for their flourishing. What about this encounter and this breakfast changes him from feeling like everyone else is someone to step over, to stand above, to wanting their flourishing, even giving his life for that. So let's begin with the time right after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus comes to the disciples after his resurrection, and his instructions were very clear. Now, this isn't when Jesus died on the cross and they were all distraught, he had died for their sins. He had resurrected. He had a glorified body and he met with the disciples multiple times. They saw the resurrected body and he doesn't mince words. He makes it so clear. Jesus said to them again in John 20 verse 21, Peace be with you, shalom, now you're abundant, flourishing, now I'm resurrected, it is with you. And he says this, this is my command for you, Peter, and the rest of you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now that you've seen the resurrected body, that I am not dead, I am alive. You are my disciples whom I love, go. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive now the Holy Spirit. Having received the Spirit, having seen the resurrected Christ, now they know their calling. Go and do what Jesus did. Reach the most vulnerable, the broken. Use, appropriate the power of the Holy Spirit to heal, bring life to other people. Establish the church. Jesus' calling was so straightforward. He even showed them his resurrected body. Thomas put his finger inside the wounds. Everyone was certain it was the resurrected Lord that was promised. He tells them the mission. He tells them what they've been prepared for for the past three years and all their life. And Jesus sends them, and Jesus breathes the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are filled to go and do the work. You would think that the disciples would then be out there changing the world. We should find the very next text, all the disciples out there just healing people and starting the church and changing the world. But what do we find in John chapter 21, verse 1? After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself this way. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas, called a twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples, they were all together. Changing the world? Filled with the Spirit? Speaking of the resurrected Christ? No, you know what it says? Simon Peter looks at all his friends, and he says, I'm going to go fishing. And the rest of them say, hey, man, we will go with you. To many of us, when we read this text, we're like, that sounds good, right? All the serving and Jesus just died and a lot of pain, our heart. You know, we just need to go fishing. They went out. They got into the boat. But this would be devastating for all fishermen. But that night, they caught nothing. Even this thing that they wanted to find relief from, This thing that they were running to saying, I'm so in pain of the betrayal and all the pain, and I'm just tired, and I just want to go fishing. Would you let me go fishing? And even that didn't bring relief. And this is where we find Christ entering. You know, what we find is that Peter was stuck. Even after seeing and touching this risen Savior, eating with this risen Lord, knowing his calling so clear that he was to be sent out to the lost world, the most vulnerable among us, but he was stuck. He couldn't do it. All he knew was that he wanted to go fishing, and the rest of them followed. What has paralyzed Peter from moving forward? There is a scene in the Bible that is so devastating. We can know just from reading this text why he became a shell of who he was. It sheds light for us. We find it in Luke chapter 22, verse 60. And he's in the midst of denying Jesus three times, and people are coming at him, and in all the confusion, he just ran away after cutting someone's ear off, and people are like, hey, I know you. I've seen you with that Jesus. And in the last denial, he says, Peter says, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crows, and he realizes everything Jesus said that I was going to do in betraying him just happened. And you and I would think that would be crushing to his soul, but you know what? 
Luke is able to show us what was most crushing in verse 61, and it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. When, the, when from his lips, the last words, I don't know Jesus, Jesus looked straight into his eyes. It wasn't behind some door. It wasn't behind the computer, the betrayal, where no one would see. You see, we do things thinking that Jesus isn't watching us. Somehow we block out the fact that Jesus is always present in our lives, knowing our betrayals from our depth of our soul to every action. And this text shows us exactly what happens. Peter betrays Jesus, and in that moment, he is not hidden, but Jesus looks into his eyes, the very same eyes that told him, you will do it. And he is crushed by it. And then in verse 62, he went out and he wept bitterly. How does Jesus take this soul that was so crushed by everything he said he was that he would do for him and then heal that wound? How does he take all the declaration of who he thought he was and then that betrayal and then give him hope and a power to go forth and change the world, become an agent of healing. Instead, someone who constantly is bombarded by the brokenness of his soul and the inability to love God the way that he deserves. The text tells us how Jesus heals him. And so the main idea of this text is that we are often stuck in our spiritual growth because we measure our faith and faithfulness, the orthodoxy and the orthopraxy of our life by comparative faith to other people rather than the finished work of Christ. That we believe that we are okay with God because we compare ourselves to other people instead of the finished work of God. The gospel doesn't set us free. It's what we do and how we perform in light of what other people are doing. And so we will look at three things today. The first, the hindrance of comparative faith. Second, the healing of the gospel faith. And third, the restoration of the gospel call. Peter, like us, measured his spiritual life by his courage to be different and more faithful than other people. And so here's the definition of comparative faith. Idolatry of comparison is a faith that finds its source in how one performs in comparison to others around them. Idolatry of comparison is a faith that finds its source in how one performs in comparison to others around them. The reason why it's idolatrous is because it finds its source of faith in one's performance versus the finished work of Christ. The assurance of one's spiritual well-being comes from comparing one's performance to the performance or system of faith in which they belong. We can see in the boat, just like Director Sujin illustrated so well for us, that when Jesus came on the water, Peter, when all the other disciples were hiding and cowering in the boat, he said, tell me to come and I will come, and he actually walked on water. 
This happens over and over and over as Peter speaks up when all the other disciples are silent and he says it the way it is. And Jesus actually references this in his healing. In Mark chapter 14, 29, it is a summary of Peter's heart condition, his comparative faith. In verse 27, it says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What good news that even when we fail, Jesus will be resurrected and come and wait for us. But instead, Peter only hears the part that says, you will all fail me and walk away. And so, of course, Peter being Peter, in verse 29, he says, even though, and this is the picture you have to see, all the other disciples are sitting around and looking at Jesus, and basically Peter points to all of them and says, even though they all fall away, I will not. Comparative faith. They are weak, and they have never loved you the way I love you, but I won't. And then Jesus looks at him in his eyes, and he says, Truly I tell you this, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, he goes against Jesus. Even though Jesus said this is true and will happen, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all the rest of the disciples are like, yeah, me too, me too, right behind them. Why do we continue in this unhealthy pattern of comparative faith? You know why? Because it's far easier and less painful to measure our love for God to other imperfect loves around us than to actually measure it against the perfection that God requires. It's overwhelming when you sit and think about the type of love that God deserves, unconditional unquestioned, entirely passionate, life-giving, sacrificial love, the surrender of our very lives that God deserves. And so it's easier to just compare it to everyone else. Peter's leadership in the church was defined by his willingness to be courageously to do and say what others were unwilling. How many of us would say and praise other men and women who serve God so passionately, not the way we do, and we say, wow, what a faith. Because we're comparing it to our own, we're comparing it to other people, and we're saying how courageous and powerful, and Peter was that, courageous and powerful. But when he failed, when his strength failed him, and he denied Jesus, he sank into the depth of wailing and sorrow because he could not love Christ the way that he knew he should love him. And God graciously exposes it, and he addresses it, not to fill him with shame and grief, but to heal and renew. So God is committed to that exposure, to sanctifying his children. My freshman year at GCF, Grace Christian Fellowship at UVA, I walked in spiritually high. I've been on multiple mission trips. I have surrendered my life to God. We, I was doing everything in our youth group. I was doing the praise team. I was leading. I was just filled with this spiritual high. And when I walked into the first meeting, here's the exact thought that went through my heart. One day, I will be the president of this fellowship. Can you imagine a freshman punk walking into a fellowship of like 200 people and being like, that's me. I'm going to be up there one day. 
I did actually become the president, but I don't think God let me be the president because of that arrogance, but I think he had a work for me. One of the main duties of being a president of Grace Christian Fellowship is to make announcements after the large group. And I would turn that moment five minutes into, and I would stretch it out to about 15 minutes with jokes and stories and all these things to entertain and make people laugh. One of my close friends who was actually slotted to be the president of GCF, he actually said no when he was nominated. He asked me to come to dinner, and I remember he spoke to me honestly. He said, why do you think you do that when you make announcements? Why not just make the announcements? Three sentences. What I couldn't articulate at that time was that my worth was attached to how I perform compared to the presidents who came before me. I had some big shoes to fill. Pastor David Larry, a good friend, was a few classes before me, and he was the president that I looked up to. When he got up, he was witty and wicked smart and made amazing announcements, and everyone laughed, and everyone wanted to come to these meetings, and in my heart, I was like, Dad, look at that charisma. I want some of that. So I constantly compared myself to him. Then when it was my turn, I was looking forward to leading those announcements, and I did. Not only Fridays, but Sunday chapel was something that the president of GCF did. But I remember that meeting I had with Pastor IJ when he came, and he was like, Bobby, we're going to let the former president who's staying around make announcements at Sunday chapel. I was crushed. Why was I devastated? When you are crushed and devastated because you can't do something, it is a key indicator that your idol is touched. When big emotions erupt in your soul, even though no one could see it on the outside, when things are happening internally and you are angry and these huge emotions happen, disappointment, devastation, I couldn't process it back then, but now I realize that my comparative faith was crushing me. My worth was tied to my performance. I was comparing myself constantly to the presidents before me and the approval of my pastor, Pastor IJ. It was such a tangled mess in my soul. I wasn't out drinking and partying and doing crazy things and being lost, but my soul was still given into idolatry. I didn't live on the finished work of Christ. I lived comparing myself to those who were faithful before me. God was so gracious to expose what was happening in my soul, and yet it was so painful, and I was filled with sorrow, disappointment, self-doubt, insecurity, and I was always trying to outperform and outdo everyone else, running in the rain to get supplies, working hard to serve the people at Grace Christian Fellowship. But what amazing grace that he wanted to expose that so that he can heal me of my idolatry that no one else saw except me and him. So he exposes our idolatry to bring us to repentance so that we can be set free. I know for many of us, when God exposes it through some instance, we want to defend ourselves and we want to say that that's not it. But at the end of the day, that's grace. And to submit to it will be transforming. 
Second, the healing of gospel faith. Jesus takes time not only to expose the truth that Peter was living out his faith in comparison to other people, but that this unhealthy pattern stems from a difficult source to detect. Why is it difficult? Because it's hidden by what is good. Why was it so hard for Peter to see that he was comparing himself and lifting himself above other people? Because it was intertwined with his love for God. We see it during this breakfast as Jesus was addressing his idolatry. Do you really love me more than these other disciples? It seems like just plainly you have denied me just like the rest of them. And he says, you know I love you. And he was saying, I can't even deny that I love you. Even though I betrayed you, I can't say that I don't love you because I do. You have changed my heart, and you know that I do. And so because he says, I feel it in the depth of my soul, you have changed me to love you and follow you, but my actions don't follow. And second, he says, really, do you love me? Agape, unconditionally, lay down your life, love me. And he says, you know that I phileo love you with everything that I have, including my betrayal, I love you. And Jesus asked a third time to make the point, do you then phileo love me? the way that you can. And it grieved his soul that he asked the third time. And he says, you know, I can't give you anything other than this imperfect love. I have, I have betrayed you, and yet my soul tells me that I cannot love any other. It stung deep every time he had to say it. Why? Because his actions only a few days before were absolutely hypocritical of these words. You know, it's the very contradiction of our orthodoxy and orthopraxy that is causing the dissonance and the grief in our soul. The hypocrisy of our belief that is contradicted by our practices. But the gospel is healing because Jesus didn't just demand change and leave it at that. He showed it to us in the context of a relationship. He came to Peter after each fail and each prideful moment, and he continued to love him even after the greatest betrayal. And when he was stuck and when he was downcast on himself, he still came to him, made him breakfast, and then addressed it. He loved Peter by taking away his shame after the exposure. The three denials would be met with three renewed declarations of acceptance for Peter's fallible love and his calling affirmed in the same breath. Jesus never took away the calling of Peter because of his failures, because his calling wasn't based on his performance. It would be based on the finished work of Christ. It is precisely because Christ loved us first that we are able to find healing in our hypocritical love for God. Jesus is the only one who truly obeyed God humbly to the point of death. He became sin who knew no sin and was led to die on the cross. A lamb led to the slaughter. This is the kind of obedience and love that God deserves. Unconditional agape love, no other. Here is the heart of why Jesus asked, do you love me the way that I deserve? Because God deserves no other kind of love. Absolute, perfect surrender, all-consuming love of allegiance, such love that if he asks you to die, you will voluntarily stretch out your hand and let him lead you to death, death on a cross. This is the reason why we weep in worship when the words consume our souls and we say, ask me to give up anything. 
Because we in our souls want to love God that way. But when we are confronted by our inability in our life to follow through, we are crushed and we feel like a hypocrite. But no other love is acceptable. The more we get into scripture and who God is and what he deserves, there is no partial good enough love that is ever remotely acceptable to God. That is why we are lost without Christ. No moral, ethical, good living can bring us eternal life. It should be inconceivable in our minds that we could ever love God the way that he deserves. Perfect obedience, even its death on the cross, is what God deserves. And when Peter compared his love for Jesus with the other disciples, he was able to pat himself on the back. I'm better than these. I'm more than these. I am able to love you. But there is only one love that is acceptable to God. The good news of the gospel is that you can't love God the way that he deserves. The good news of the gospel is that there was, is, and will be only one who can and who did. And the most amazing grace is that he did it for you and I because we couldn't. The good news of the gospel tells us that Jesus lived a life of obedience that you and I couldn't and he died the death that we deserve. In Christ alone, we love and obey God as he deserves. That's imputed to us. That's given to us as a gift. Our imperfect, well-intentioned, and times hypocritical love becomes acceptable because we are found in Christ. You know, the only alternative to being in Christ is to lower the standard of what you think God deserves. That lowering of standard is called comparative faith. I love God. How do I know? Because I do it better than them. I'm more faithful to the Bible than. I'm more generous in giving than. I serve more than. I know more than. I sacrifice more than. I love more than. I drink less than. I smoke less than. I party less than. And we live in a world where comparative faith is what we hold on to because we can't love God the way that he deserves. Comparative faith is no faith at all because it is not centered on the finished work of Christ, but the ongoing performance of the self. The only faith acceptable to God is one that wholly places its trust in Christ's finished work. R.C. Sproul said this. There is a sense in which the depth of our affection for Christ is inseparably related to the depth of our understanding of that which we have been forgiven. Peter understood that of all of those surviving, he had betrayed Christ more deeply than the rest. Therefore, in being forgiven, restored, and invited back, not only into the fellowship of Christ, but into the ministry of Christ, rather than being dismissed from ministry for the rest of his life, for his scandalous transgression, he saw the grace of God more fully than the rest. I believe that was what Jesus was driving at with his question. And so lastly, knowing that Christ has loved us in this way, there's a restoration of the gospel call when we understand that we are not to love God by comparing ourselves to other people and their love for God and what they do, but based on the finished work of Christ, 
God takes Peter and he restores his calling. Hey, Peter, you are called to be the shepherd of my sheep, the fisher of men, not because you are better than others. Not because you love me the way that I deserve, but because I love you far more than you deserve. So now you are freed from comparative faith that is filled with jealousy and envy, judgment, criticism, constant comparing, constant competing. He says, now you can tend, love, heal, correct, lead my sheep, love them because you were first loved. You know what's amazing in verse 18 and 19? In this simple phrase, God gives to us the indicator of maturity that happens in a believer when they surrender comparative love and they are jump-started into actually beginning that journey of surrendered faith, gospel faith, giving in to the finished work of Christ. In verse 18 through 19, there are a column belonging to the young and a column belonging to the old. And then there's a phrase in between. And this comparative structure with one middle section that belongs to both allows us to see what it is. The first column, the young person, when you were young, you dressed yourself. That means you looked and you were like, you know what, this outfit looks good on me and I like it and it's who I am. And you begin to identify what you are and you put it on and you say, this is what I am. And so you're building yourself up. And then you go wherever you want it. It doesn't matter what God's will is, maybe. And sometimes it aligns, sometimes it doesn't align. But at the end of the day, you are choosing where you want to go, how you want to live your life. This is your young self. Then he says, when you get old, and the phrase that is stuck in between is the stretch out your hand. But then he says, in the old, someone else will dress you. You will have to live in the imputed clothes of someone else who chooses for you. And they will lead you where you don't want to go. And he says this was speaking to Peter about the death that he would face. And then the in-between phrase that stands out is you will stretch out your hand. I think when you're younger and God says do this and that, you're like, no, I'm still gonna choose what I wanna do. But as you mature, you begin to choose to surrender to God what he wants. That you will stretch out your hand and you will say, dress me, take me where I need to go. Your calling is, when you are healed, for God to lead you to places that are uncomfortable, things that you don't want to do, things that you couldn't even imagine in your spiritual walk doing, to tend to other people for the flourishing of other people. You cannot have compassion for those that you are criticizing. You can't have community with those that you are competing against. You can't care for those that you are cursing and you cannot collaborate with those you've grown callous toward. Here's a clear application call for you. Who in your life do you compete against for your worth? I'm asking you to actually pick a name. Now that you've, expo now that you've been exposed to that idolatry, how can you now live for their flourishing? That God has healed your heart and allows you to live in the finished work of Christ, what will you do practically to celebrate their life and for their flourishing?
The restoration of Peter is a reminder that our that the gospel is not a private assurance that we are saved and that we have a ticket to heaven. He saves us for the feeding, the tending, the loving, the sacrificial love to make others flourish. Those who were once we competed against, those who we once felt our stomach turn in their successes, those that we've hated and cursed behind closed doors, God is saying those will now be those you love those you fight for their flourishing. Only the gospel can do that work. Ramsey Michaels, who wrote a commentary on John, said this. Ministry is thus the service of healed men and women who understand their personal histories and handicaps well who have made their brokenness transparent before God and been forgiven as well as transformed by the Spirit of God. They are fishermen seeking those Christ calls them to net and shepherds nurturing those who have joined the flock. But above all, they are people who love the church because they love Jesus Christ. Peter Failure was epic and known to all. It should have all but destroyed him, but it ended up becoming the thing that Jesus used to set him free. Free from comparative faith to believing what the gospel says, that his worth is secured in Christ's finished work. And it allowed him to view other people, not as people to compete against or step over or to stand on, but to kneel before and fight for their flourishing because yours is met in Christ. Here's the gospel call for many of you. If you've been overwhelmed with the failures in your life that God cannot possibly love you like Peter, this is a call for you to come to the open arms of the Savior, the same one who addressed Peter's greatest failure over breakfast. I like that kind of Savior. Believe that you are acceptable because of what Christ has done. Don't let your past crush your soul and paralyze you. Jesus wants to break all chains of guilt and shame caused by our comparison to other people to give you an identity that is not tied to our performance, but his grace and his finished work. Let's pray. Dear God, for all of us who feel stuck in the do's and don'ts, who feel comfortable where we are because at least we don't do this and that, but yet in the depth of our soul, we're jealous, envy of others, we dismiss others. There's a part of us that feels like we're better than others or we envy other people's lives or we envy a life that we're looking forward to, where we want to go, where we have determined our life to be. And all the while, our spiritual life is collapsing before us. Would you meet with us over breakfast? Would you expose the idolatry that we feel okay because we're better than others? And would you release us through the gospel and through your finished work to see others not as competition or people that we stand on, but people to kneel before 
and to cherish, to love, and fight for their flourishing. Grant us this grace, Lord God. In Jesus' name.